Buongiorno, and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy and international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tecum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we're going to explore the current Afghan peace talks and what this could mean for the potential for sustainable development in the country as it stands. Now, discussions have been on and off with them recently, reaching a critical point over the past two years with Afghan President Ashraf Ghani announcing talks for a peace proposal to include the Taliban within peace negotiations in the future of Afghanistan. Now, the United States, which is one of the key forces in Afghanistan since 2001, were also included. But since September of this year, the U.S. under President Donald Trump has canceled their participation in peace talks with Taliban leaders following an escalation of violence in Kabul. Despite this, the Taliban remains key stakeholder in discussing the future of Afghanistan. But what does this really mean for the country's overall development? Is their inclusion of the Taliban and their track record in suppressing Afghanistan's progress actually undoing the current developments and strides that the country has made since their downfall? Or could this potentially lead to another phase in Afghani future? Joining me on today's episode is Alex Thier. Alex was the executive director of the Overseas Development Institute from 2017 to 2019, he was previously a senior official at USAID and founded Triple Helix, a U.S.-based consultancy firm working to increase the access to off-grid renewable energy in Africa and Asia. Now, During his time at USAID, he served as the assistant to the Administrator for Afghanistan and Pakistan Affairs, where he managed USAID's multi-billion dollar assistance program and more than a thousand staff in Washington, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the region overall. He has authored and co-authored books, articles, and op-eds in the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, and Foreign Policy. So it's pretty evident to say that he is someone who really knows what he's talking about concerning Afghanistan. So, Alex, welcome to the Global Podcast. It's great to be here with you, Jesu. Thank you. No, no problem. Um, As we traditionally do on the Global Podcast, let's go a little bit about the background, just to give the audience an understanding of where we're coming from here. So if I understand correctly that the peace process, in theory, has been going on since 2001, back when Qatar hosted the talks, but it really reached its zenith, of course, you know, these past two years with the inclusion of the Taliban suddenly at the discussion table. Uh, For our listeners who are just coming to grasp with this, could you explain what the intention and the purpose of these peace talks, especially for these past two years, have been and how the Taliban suddenly weave themselves in as a major stakeholder with this? What has happened over the last really eight years is a kind of on again, off again effort by all sides. And by the sides, I think we really have to consider the Taliban as a side, sort of Afghan government as a side, 
and the international military forces led by the United States as an additional side. And for many years, one uh, or more of them didn't want to sit at the negotiating table. Uh, the U.S. didn't want to, to for a long time because they thought that they would have a military victory. The Afghan government similarly felt that they had the recognition of the international community. And the Taliban felt increasingly that they had a role to play in Afghanistan, which they had ruled uh, in the latter part of the of the last century and obviously were chased out of power in 2001. Uh, what has finally happened is that the United States has really signaled that it wants to draw down its presence in Afghanistan. And the Taliban have continued to insist that their ability or willingness to make peace would depend on foreign troops leaving. And that has left the Afghan government, frankly, trying to balance the two, trying to balance an ongoing and very violent conflict with the Taliban, who are not representative of most of the Afghan population, and an international community that continues to support a democratic, inclusive Afghan government, but who is starting to, frankly, lose interest in the level of commitment that it has uh, required and shown uh, since 2001. Um, and that moment has created an opportunity for there to be talks, because all parties are now interested in trying to negotiate a future. And so that began really in earnest about a year ago, with the United States actually engaging directly in talks with the Taliban. And those talks were directed at four pillars. One was the United States withdrawing and uh, the rest of the NATO troops withdrawing from Afghanistan. It was about prisoners and prisoner exchanges and that sort of thing, which after 18 years of war becomes meaningful. Uh, it was about a ceasefire for the Afghans uh, themselves. Um, and it was about a renunciation of terrorism, which for many reasons is why the Afghan war started in 2001, of course, because Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda had refuge in Afghanistan. Interesting in that aspect. And if we can go back real quick to the notion where you indicated that, you know, the Taliban isn't representative of, of the Afghani population in that sense, you know, with the inclusion of, of the Taliban, I mean, how... How popular is that with the Afghan population? Is there a desire to say, okay, well, it makes sense, but how popular is their inclusion, however, within the country? Well, there are really two things going on. On one hand, you have a Taliban that has been brutal. They have been killing Afghan civilians around the country. When they were in power between 1996 and 2001, they engaged in policies that were very brutal and discriminatory against women, against the Shia population of Afghanistan. And so they've never been a popular force in the sense that people are waiting for them to liberate the country. But at the same time, Afghans are exhausted after what is really 40 years of war uh, marked by uh, the coup, the communist coup and the Soviet invasion in, in 1979. And so people are, I would say, supportive of peace talks while not being supportive directly of the Taliban. Mm. That seems to make sense. And of course, as, you, as you've indicated, this is a war that has gone on, and of course at various stages, but Afghanistan has been in a state of conflict 
for a long time. And naturally, there is always a benefit to having all parties at the peace talks. You know, we saw this in Colombia with FARC and even with Cambodia, with the Khmer Rouge facilitated by the late uh, UN diplomat Sergio Vede Dumelo. You know, you need to have all actors at the negotiating table to make peace work. Um, but considering the uh, ever so colorful reputation of the Taliban, I mean, is there a risk with the involvement of the Taliban in still being involved in the future of Afghanistan in potentially... Uh, you know, clearly there's a fatigue in seeing this and people want to get this done uh, as quick as possible. But is there a risk in including them or does it make sense from what you see to have them at the discussion table for Afghanistan's future? I mean, we are we are deeply into suboptimal territory here yeah. as far as Afghanistan is concerned. I mean, there is not a path to peace to the end of conflict at the moment without the Taliban being at the negotiating table. They control considerable territory in the country. They have withstood uh, a United States-led military campaign uh, over uh, now 18 years to keep them out of power. They continue to enjoy funding from the Gulf and other places, and they continue to enjoy refuge in Pakistan. And so the idea that there is going to be peace in Afghanistan, that the war will end and Afghanistan will move forward without the Taliban being at the table, I think really doesn't make sense to anybody. And that is why I think that most people, the United States, its allies, the Afghan government, the Afghan opposition, and really the Afghan people have accepted the idea of the Taliban being at the table and being part of a peaceful solution. The thing, however, that they won't accept is giving up on the gains that Afghanistan has seen over the last 18 years since 2001. Afghanistan has really made some remarkable progress, and it is a fundamentally changed country since when the Taliban were in power 20 years ago. And that is really the part that uh, the Afghans, I think, will really resist giving up. There's not a going back to the days when the Taliban ruled the country and women were excluded from education and health and all power and that men were forced to grow beards and televisions were smashed in the town square, that that era is not going to come back. I'm glad you spoke about the fact that Afghanistan has made strides and clear developmental and actually social progress. Uh, since the fall of the Taliban in, in 2001, because I feel that that, that image has been quite muddled uh, within, within general media and just general consciousness. So I was wondering if you can uh, explain which were the few great successes that Afghanistan has had um, to, to show that it is indeed a country that, that has been making change, despite what the media is demonstrating. It has developed, maybe slowly, but development and, and progress has occurred. Absolutely. And, and in many respects, I wouldn't even say slowly. I mean, Afghanistan was at a real low point in human development terms in 2001 after 20 years of devastating conflict and the policies of the Taliban. And so when the Afghan government came back and formed a new government after the Bonn conference and then a new constitution in 2004 and brought in a lot of international support, some really dramatic things have happened. So first of all, education, right? We know that Afghan girls were excluded essentially from education and you had a kind of lost generation and you've gone from having about a, 
you know, a million boys in school to 8 million boys and girls in school. And so huge uptick in kids going to school and literacy and all the things that have come with it. You know, these Afghans have now grown up in a digital age. There were barely any telephones in the entire country in 2001. And now, like most places in the world, most Afghans have telephones and even smartphones and internet access and use of social media and WhatsApp and all of these things. And so they have really grown up in a, in a different environment. The health statistics are also equally fascinating. Afghanistan had among the highest infant and maternal mortality rates in the world. And although it still does, life expectancy in Afghanistan shot up about 20 years, uh, 15 to 20 years um, in uh, the first decade, because suddenly you had Afghans who had access to basic health care uh, when they hadn't had any or virtually any previously, except in the major towns. Uh, but other things have happened as well. I mean, you have, you know, traffic jams around the major cities now because there is a lot more commerce. You have a lot more roads in Afghanistan today. You have a rail network going from the northern city of Mazar-e-Sharif up into uh, Uzbekistan. Uh, you have uh, uh, electricity grid, which is still struggling, and most Afghans uh, lack uh, good access to electricity, but it's millions more um, than had it previously, which, of course, then enables commerce and industry and, and markets to be open after dark. Um, and so you've seen a huge uptick overall in the Afghan economy and Interestingly, of course, Afghans collecting taxes to fund their own government, although they are very heavily reliant on international donors, they have also considerably increased their intake of taxes to fund some of their, their own government. So there have really been advances across the board. I think the important thing is not that those advances are not real or that they're contested, it's that they are fragile. And every day that the conflict goes on endangers those because it kills people, it scares away investment, it depresses growth. Um, and, and that is really what is challenging Afghanistan's development path. And it's good that you mentioned the fact that it is fragile, that, that though the progress has occurred, it is quite fragile. And that brings me actually to my next question, because clearly we have these key successes going in Afghanistan you know, with maternal health, with commerce actually happening, and, and uh, Afghanis finally feeling that, okay, this country is somewhat becoming a normal country once more, because I think also many don't understand that pre-Taliban and pre-Soviet invasion, you know, Afghanistan, you know, it, it had, it was, it was quite the modern city if we were to look at pictures of Afghanistan in the 70s and the 60s. But to, to, to talk about the current strides that are happening being fragile, with the reemergence of the Taliban as, uh, as a key stakeholder, particularly with the, uh, with, uh, the peace talks, and I understand as well, too, their inclusion as a potential political party, how could this potentially unravel uh, the progress being made? Because, uh, as you've indicated, the Afghani people will, no, will not uh, take uh, the, the regression, uh, but the Taliban clearly has a different mentality. I mean, is is there a potential for this unraveling or, or would that not be the case with the Taliban somehow back down? Well, I think that your question points to one of the deepest mysteries, question marks, concerns about the peace process, which is that some people believe that the Taliban have changed, that they are coming to the table understanding that Afghanistan is a different place 
understanding that they will have to allow these things to continue and understanding that they won't have absolute power. And so that ultimately they will be prepared to compromise and that many of these compromises might impose some further strictures on what people can do, what they can watch, uh, whether women can go out alone or participate in certain types of jobs and so on, but that they will really reform their mindset to allow for modern Afghanistan to continue to emerge. And others believe that that's not true, that it's nonsense and that they're sort of sending some of these signals so that the international community doesn't freak out, but that they do get out. And that once they're out, the Taliban will resume their stranglehold on power and impose these old strictures. And the problem is that nobody knows the answer to that question. And it's not even clear that the Taliban know. Uh, because there do appear to be splits in the Taliban. You have more modernizing forces who are sitting at the table uh, in Doha uh, in these negotiations who are now traveling around to Indonesia and Russia and China and listening to music and being on social media and saying some of the right things. And so you think like, okay, maybe they really have changed. And then you have uh, a cadre who are blowing up people in mosques and uh, killing people and assassinating people in public squares and 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 putting out statements that suggest uh, that they still support al-Qaeda. And so it, it's hard to say. And I think that the problem is that we're really not going to know. And so the idea that we have to hold up the process until we know for certain where it's going, I think, is is also not going to work. But at the same time, the, the international community, and particularly the United States, leading this effort needs to understand and needs to put in place that there have to be real checks and safeguards in the process. So if, for example, the United States agrees to a conditions-based withdrawal from Afghanistan, those conditions have to be clear, and they also have to be credible that if the conditions are not met, the withdrawal will stop. Because if it's not credible, if people believe that Trump is just going to take all the troops out anyway, maybe precipitously, then there's no reason for the Taliban to moderate their stances. And I think that's really what is preoccupying people now. Uh, I wrote something that came out in the New York Review of Books uh, a couple of months ago that really looks at this question in detail and the struggle that many Afghans, many Afghan leaders are having in deciding whether they can trust this chance at peace. And that's and that's even more worrisome if we think about it, because as you've indicated in the beginning of the episode, there is a, a desire to end this conflict. It's been too long. Uh, people just want to get it over and done with and just come to some sort of resolution. But uh, as indicated, the lack of proper due diligence to really understand, wait a minute, what is the position of the Taliban? It puts it as risk because just as you indicated, we don't know where the Taliban stands and it's quite... Um, uh, it's it's quite vague, which 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 makes the whole notion uh, for for proper sustainable development in Afghanistan uh, and peace talks a little bit more more gray in that sense. But however, going going into regards to the future of Afghanistan and what's needed for greater impact. I mean, from your end, from your experience, and from your understanding of Afghanistan in general, what do you believe Afghanistan needs? 
from peace talks in order to secure sustainable development for the country that leads to greater impact and quality of life in the country, which Afghans have been for too long really denied. What what are the key aspects that need to be included for any talks or discuss, negotiation going forward? Well, I think the first obvious one is a, is a ceasefire. There needs to be a stop in violence because the, the violence just deteriorates the chance to make progress on, on anything else. Uh, and while I won't say that that should be a precondition to talks, because I think it's important to start talks on whatever terms or to continue them, uh, that has to be an early and, and critical element. Uh, the second really has to be that Afghans need to continue to be able to exercise their their basic rights. And for me, that means having a constitution that protects uh, the rights of women and minorities, uh, that is one that allows people, uh, whether wh whatever group they are from, to participate fully in the basic elements of Afghan economic, political, and, and social life. Uh, because without that kind of inclusion, there is almost always a return to conflict because there will be, you know, there will be deep resentments and ill will on, on all sides. Um, and I think the third is really that, you know, the international community together with the Afghan government really needs to continue the path of investment. Um, Afghanistan has cost a lot. There's no question about it. Um, and whether one believes that that investment was fully justified or not, it would certainly be foolhardy at this point, after so much investment, to, to go cheap at the end. Um, Afghanistan does have an opportunity to advance its development significantly if there is peace, because there, it has really depressed economic growth, not only in Afghanistan, but in the whole region. And economic uh, interconnectivity in that region would yield huge gains for Afghanistan and its neighbors. Uh, but that will only happen if there is confidence in the long term. People aren't going to make big investments if they think that it's going to get blown up in a year or two or five. Uh, but it also is going to require resources that simply just don't uh, exist. And so there are those, whether in the U.S. government, the World Bank and others that are already planning for some kind of peace dividend for Afghanistan. And I think that will be a very important signal. Well, thank you very much for actually making those comments. And I'm really hoping that those who listen uh, to this episode perhaps uh, feel a bit inspired in regards to, to even taking initiative towards that aspect for Afghanistan. I mean, Alex, this has been an extremely fruitful conversation. And uh, let's hope that with the peace talks for Afghanistan that at present seem to be quite stalled, but if they should progress, hopefully these considerations are taken are taken into account because as indicated it's been a very long conflict and it's something that uh, one thing that the afghan people need is finally peace and security so alex thank you very much for joining the global podcast it's been a pleasure absolutely my pleasure that brings us to the end of this edition of the global podcast i'm jesu antonio Baez, director of pax second global consultancy which produces this series please do check out our website at www.paxtechumglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L.org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of PAX on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, 
please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!